Hey, a couple announcements real quick. Um, so Christmas Eve, we'd love to have you with us if you're in town. Um, you see there that it is um, at <clears throat> Blueberry Hill. Blueberry Hill is at 75 Brimble Ave. If you have a pen or pencil and want to write down that address, Blueberry Hill Nursing Home is at 75 Brimble Ave here in Beverly. And we were there last year and really excited about being there again this year. Hopefully that we'll have residents with us this year. As I said a couple of weeks ago, they'd all gone to sleep last year and we did our service at 7. But at 3 o'clock we should be there to serve and love. It's going to be wonderful. Another thing that I want to just call your attention to is we are absolutely thrilled about what's coming up in the next few weeks. You know that I like to take our New Year's time and kind of lead us in a, um, a series that lets us take stock of where we've been and where we're going. And last year we kind of focused on, hey, um, kind of our end of things, like, hey, who has God called me to be? You know, what am I passionate about? And, you know, how can I kind of look forward to 2010? Well, this um, coming the next three weeks, starting on the 26th, we're going to start a series called Apprehended, and we're, we're also taking stock of our calling, but it's going to be kind of more from the God side. And so on, the, on next week, on the 26th, we'll, we'll talk about being apprehended by God, your creator, and the fact that you're designed by him for a purpose. On January 2nd, we're going to talk about you being apprehended by God, your redeemer. We're going to take a look at the body and the blood of Christ, and we're, we're going to share communion together, and um, I'm just really thrilled about that one in particular. And then January 9th, we'll be talking about being apprehended by God, our sustainer, and the exchanged life that, that we are allowed to have, that we exchange our life with Jesus's, and, and um, it's an incredible life. We're able to live impossible lives because of Christ living inside us. So I'd like to take these, those three weeks and help you take stock of, hey, God, where have I been in 2010? What do you want to do in 2011? We're going to do it through this series called Apprehended. You won't want to miss it. So if you're in town on the 26th, you're going to have a great little start to things. Awesome. Hey, let's pray together and um, talk about love. <clears throat> Lord, even as we just sang, and um, even as several of us praying before the service had real pictures of, we just need to behold you tonight. Lord, you are the king of love. And Lord, you showed us what love is by dying on a cross laying down your life for people who were not lovely. So, Lord, let us behold you. And again, even as we just sang, we want to behold the baby in a manger who, because he was born in such a lowly estate, can identify with each of our trials, Lord. Lord, every trial in this room. I just want to break the lie that keeps some of us isolated, saying that my trial is too difficult, or it's not understood, God, we break the power of that lie in this room and say thank you that Jesus understands and Jesus loves. Just by faith, we receive that again tonight, that Jesus loves, Jesus understands. Oh, Lord, that we behold you, especially as we look at your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you, church. You gave us a great vacation. Kelsey and I were on a cruise in the Caribbean, Southern Caribbean, for um, 10 days. Thank you, God is right, Doug. <laughs> and um, we started out in, in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and just actually unexpected to me. I just had a real kind of visitation from God while I was there, and um, that's one thing that's great about vacation is you're able to just kind of clear the deck so you can do things that are important, like hear God. 
And uh, then we cruised down on a southerly heading to Aruba, and then east to another one of the Netherlands Antilles called Bonaire. That's actually where I had some great snorkeling. Continued east to Grenada, and Kelsey really enjoyed Grenada. That's um, where a lot of the world's spices come from. We had a great visit at a spice farm, which is actually really fascinating. And then from Grenada northward to um, uh, Dominica, and then from Dominica northwesterly to the Virgin Islands, St. Thomas, and then west back to San Juan, Puerto Rico. So I highly recommend cruising. It's all the adventure. I mean, just I love being on a ship. I love all the ports of call. It was just beautiful for Kelsey and, and um, me and for our son. JD was along. He did great. I mean, it was kind of funny seeing him walk on the ship because he's a little out of balance sometimes. He flipped over. Um, but I look forward to doing it when maybe when he's a little bit older. And um, it was great. And, uh, you know, one of the things that was great about the cruise was just the various people that we met. We, we actually ended up meeting one of the producers at CNN, fun conversation with him and his wife. But then we got really attached to some of the crew, and some of the crew became really attached to us. So we had Ricardo, the guy from the Philippines, who was our steward, and like two and three times a day, he was attending to our stateroom, cleaning up after us, giving us new towels. Just the guy served our socks off, and he was so kind to Jaren, we were just blown away. And then we got especially close to one of our servers. Her name was Zelda. She's from South Africa. And so if you've ever been on a cruise, you know, they have the option of kind of formal dining every night where you, you dine and you meet with the same people. In our case, we all knew each other because it was my parents-in-law and their other, well, Clara, who's here, and um, Courtney. And we just had our own table. And Zelda was serving us every night. And as we got to know Zelda and Zelda got to know us, we kind of had this kind of mutual affection thing going on where you know, we were just like, Zelda, you're awesome. And Zelda was like, wow, you guys are awesome. Because I don't know if you know, my parents-in-law, Kelsey's parents, the Bowens, are just very fun people. So, like, they, it's easy. They could kind of win people's affection really easily. So, you know, then we'd see Zelda. You know, they don't just have one job. They do other things. So we'd see, him, see her at different places on the ship. And, um, and you know, she'd, she'd just be so in love with our son, Jaren. And we'd be like, we love you. You're awesome. And I just was kind of like, wow, this is cool how, like, once someone starts to kind of open the door of like, hey, you're cool, you're cool too, we think you're awesome. Like it just is this contagion, this snowball contagion of you're awesome, you have this mutual admiration club, and it's wonderful. And I love that about love. I love how admiration or love, you know, it just starts to multiply, and it starts to grow, and it's great. Another thing that I don't know if you've noticed this, but when people start to show their affection for each other, you know, whether it's like just in that kind of professional relationship, whether it's a friendship or whether it's romantic love, when people start to reveal their affection for one another, it just gets really tender. And some of the most tender, drawing moments in life are moments when people reveal their affection or their tenderness or their love or their passion for one another. <clears throat> Perhaps you remember the scene in The Lion King, the Disney great, where Simba and Nala, they haven't seen each other for a long time, but they tumble into each other and, you know, Simba's been away, and he's not been walking the destiny that he's supposed to be in. And, uh, you know, they kind of start catfighting each other before they realize. You know, Simba realizes, hey, wait, this is Nala. This is Nala. And Nala says, Simba? And then <laughs> eventually, Nala says, I've missed you. And that's when everything <clears throat> breaks, you know, things change. And Simba says, me too. And then, of course, thank you, Elton John, the beautiful song, <laughs> Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Bursts forth. What a tender moment. I, it's the only one I could find that was like a G example of what happens when people start revealing their love to each other. But it's fun. 
So I'm going to bring you actually into a very similar moment. We're going to be looking at a scripture where there's a whole lot of love going on. There's this contagious love thing. Uh, the Apostle John was so struck by the love of Jesus. You know, John was able to call himself, hey, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we might find that really arrogant, but honestly, the guys had a revelation of just Jesus' affection for him. But the Apostle John also had a revelation of Jesus' agape love, his sacrificial love, his unconditional love. And so John is so taken up by the love of God that he just overflows. He spills it out. You know, there's this contagion snowball of love coming out in all of his letters. And he, the, the piece of Scripture that we're looking at comes after he wrote his gospel. He's in his 60s. He's left Jerusalem. And now he's living in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, kind of western part of Turkey. And the guys, um, you got to feel for him because he's lost some of his best friends to martyrdom. Like already, Peter and James have, have died because of their faith in Jesus. And Paul, who was surely a colleague of his, or they weren't tight as in had walked through with Jesus together, but Paul had also been martyred by this time. So some of the big guns of the first apostles are all being killed for their faith. And here's John just loving this community in Ephesus, loving this church. And by proxy, he's also loving some of the other churches around there, the churches that we recognize in the book um, Revelation. And um, he's written his gospel. He's put down his account of this incredible love named Jesus. And now to follow up that gospel, he's written a few letters. They're encyclicals. They're meant for all these churches to read. He said, all right, now that I've shared with you my love for this man, Jesus, I need to tell you practically, how do we do this thing? How do we do church? And so that's the context that we're about to read. And what we're about to read, John is answering four questions about love. He is answering four questions about love. And of course, the first one that we're all asking all the time, and I hear it because of all of our searches for love, our, hey, should I get married? Should I not get married? How do I do this? How do I do that? But the first question, one of our foundational questions is, what is love? What does love look like? So turn with me to the other John 3.16. It's 1 John 3.16, and we'll get the answer to, what is love? 1 John is after the Peters. It's before Jude and Revelation. It's going to be towards the end of your New Testament. 1 John 3.16. What is love? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This. Can we just say this one together? Let's read this verse together. It's up on the screen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. John's colleague, Paul, said it really similarly in Romans 5.8 when he says, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And that, that, that Jesus laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, that ought to is better translated, we are indebted to. We are obligated. Right? We, we ought to love our brothers. It's we, we are indebted to love our brothers and our sisters. We must. And... Again, to whom are we to lay our lives down? For our brothers and sisters. I don't know about you, that that can be hard. You know, it'd be one thing, like, Jesus laid down his life for me, so for me to lay down my life for Jesus, that can be very romantic. Like, yes, Lord, of course, because you love me, so I can love you back. But look what John is saying. He's saying, 
Jesus laid down his life, and now you need to lay your life down for who? Your brothers and sisters. Now, look to the person. You know, look to your right and your left. Now, that person sitting on your right and your left, sometimes he or he is rebellious. Sometimes he or she is really weak in their sin. Sometimes they're really ungrateful, and they're kind of undeserving. Sometimes they're just annoying, okay? Like me. And yet, John is saying, this is what love is. Like Jesus laid down his life, we need to do the same. Laying down our lives for one another. In World War II, in 1943, on February 3rd, there was a cruise ship, actually, that had been converted into a troop transport and designated the Dorchester. And it was going from the U.S. to England, bringing troops. And in the freezing waters of the North Atlantic, off Newfoundland, a German submarine torpedoed this ship. And the torpedo hit the electric workings of the ship first. So everything went dark. And the, the troops, especially the ones on the lower deck, started to panic. Well, on the ship, there were four chaplains. One was a Methodist minister, one a rabbi, one a Catholic priest, and the last one a Reformed pastor. And these guys started to bring order back to the troops. Say, hey, guys, calm down. We know it's dark. We're going to make it. Well, that ship started to go down. And they were passing out life preservers. And then they realized that there weren't enough for everyone. So, of course, what would you expect happened? These four chaplains took off their life preservers and gave them to other men so they could survive. One of the survivors, the survival rate was, I don't know, maybe one in five, maybe one in eight. It was not too many because the waters were so cold. But one of the survivors saw the ship go down, and as the ship was sinking, you know, the bow had, had come up out of, the, out of the water and was sinking down. And he saw the four chaplains were on top of that bow praying together. Even a rabbi, they were praying together, singing hymns as that thing went down. And they had no life preservers. Now that's laying down your life. Those four chaplains are memorialized in a Navy chapel that is now on the Temple University campus in Philadelphia. That's laying your life down. Now, you, are, you and me, we don't usually face crucifixion. or It's not often that we face that sort of um, opportunity to give literally our lives. And John knew this, so he starts to answer another question. He answers the question, what does it look like for you and me to lay down our lives? How do we love like Jesus loved? And I believe he shows us three ways. The first one is in 1 John 3.11, so a little bit above where we've just read. Follow me now in 1 John 3.11. This is the first way that we can lay down our lives since we're not usually facing the electric chair. It says, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Continuing in 13. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. A little bit of a heavy. The number one way that John says we are to love like Jesus loved is by not hating or dealing with the anger and jealousy in our hearts. Dealing aggressively with it. And rightfully so, he cites 
Cain and Abel, the story from Genesis 4. Do you remember what happened? Cain and Abel, the first sons of Adam and Eve, they are born and they're just different. Are you different from your siblings? If you have siblings, are you a little bit different from them? These guys are a little different. Cain came out first, and he was the guy who worked the soil. That was his deal. Then comes Abel, but he's more of a flock guy. So he deals with flocks. And the time comes for both of them to give their sacrifice, to honor the God who graciously ushered Adam and Eve out of the garden. But this very God that Adam and Eve had known, it was time for them to sacrifice to to him. Now it says that Abel, out of his flocks, took the fat portions of the firstborn. In other words, he gave God the best of the best, and God accepted that sacrifice. But Cain, it just says that he gave some of the fruit of the soil. No, no real mention of it being the best of the best. And so God took Abel's sacrifice, but didn't accept Cain. Cain's sad about this. So what does God say? He says, hey, Cain, all you've got to do is do what's right, and then you'll be okay. But if you don't do right, sin is crouching at your door and you must master it. Well, Cain isn't able to master the jealousy or the rage. And so he invites Abel into the field and slays him. A simple story, but one that I think has profound insight into our hearts. Because isn't what Cain did to Abel often what goes on in us when we are jealous or angry or insecure? So what do we learn from the story? We learn that it doesn't matter what you have. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a flock person. It doesn't matter if you're a soil person. In other words, your brother and your sister may be a little different than you, and they might be more gifted than you, and that's okay. What matters is what you do with what you have, right? What, what Cain needed to do was give the best, like the first fruits of his flock, the best that he had. He didn't have to give what Abel gave to God. He needed to give what Cain could give to God. And when we don't do that, that's, isn't that when we find ourselves insecure and jealous? So let's deal with the anger and the jealousy in our heart. That's how we love our brother. Surely John had the, the words of Jesus in his mind when he penned this. When Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. In other words, not just murder that's going to get you in trouble, but anger in your heart. Jesus is after the heart when he's saying this. He says, again, anyone who says to his brother, raka, which is just a word for bonehead, okay? In Aramaic, it means empty head. It's answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. And again, fool might not seem like a strong word, but the, the meaning there is like a godless person. You're just a godless person, you. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, when you get to that level where you just, you're saying, hey, that person's godless, in other words, you're passing judgment on them, that judgment is reserved for God. It's not up to you or me to judge whether someone is godless or not. God is going to have the last word, not you or me on someone else. And so if there's irritation in your heart, if there's anger or judgment, then that's when you say, oh God, help me. Transform me. Let me just do what I'm to do. You know, let me give my best to God and let you deal with that other person. That's the first way that we lay down our lives, by dealing with anger and judgment, jealousy. second way that we deal with, or that we lay down our lives, we find in uh, chapter 3, verse 17. Look at verse 17. It says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 
If anyone has goods, resources of this world, and sees, notice, behold, not just kind of glances at, but you are, you behold, it comes to your attention that a brother is in need, but has no pity on him, or literally doesn't let the doors of your heart, compassion open to them, how can the love of God be in him? The second way that we lay down our lives is by giving to those who have a need. And man, for me, it is such a privilege to be walking with some of you. I mean, what our faith groups have done this season for helping those in need just blows my mind. Thanksgiving, we had Brian and Dela's faith group. They were getting together um, these baskets of Thanksgiving meals and giving them to people who had need or friends that they were just trying to reach out to. I said, yes, this is the heart of God. This is ten times better than a sermon in church as a basket going to someone. Or um, some of the college faith groups. We had a small number of college students give a disproportionately large amount of cash so they could buy toys that could go to Beverly Bootstrap so kids who otherwise don't have a, birth, a Christmas present excuse me, have one. They just go, yes, this is what we're about. And Oh, I just pray that that increases at the harbor. And just so you know, every year we're increasing by a half a percent or a percentage the, the tithe of what we bring in. In other words, we bring in, and 10%, I think this year it's going to be 10.5 or 11, but percent just goes right to a whole bunch of other ministries because we know that we need to give to those who are in need, and give to missions and other things. Just you know that happens. The third way that, G, that John tells us, hey, this is how we can lay down our life. This is how we can love like Jesus loves our brother. We find the next verse, verse 18. He says, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. He's definitely backing up the verse we just mentioned. But I'd like to separate it out and say, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. The third way that John is inviting us to lay down our lives is to do so by just checking our love, making sure that it's sincere. You know, are we, do we have integrity in our love? It's what we say, what we do when it comes to loving others. And I can't think of anyone better than this than my wife, Kelsey. Kelsey is so dang good at loving with her words and not exceeding her words. She always backs up her words with her actions. She loves really well. Or I think of even um, Elizabeth, who uh, just lit our love candle. You know that Elizabeth works in a company where at any given moment there's, I don't know, half a dozen or more um, workers from India who are working there. And often with their children aren't there. Their families aren't there. What does Elizabeth do? She says, hey, come, come on my sailboat. Let's go camping. She doesn't just say, hey, I'm so glad you're here at work and have a nice six months while you're here. She says, hey, let me let you into my life and let me love you. Elizabeth loves people with actions and truth. So, John's answered two questions so far. He's answered, what does love look like? What is love? Second one he's answered is, how do we, how do, we do that? You know, how do I love like the third question that I think he answers in this passage is he answers, what is the fruit of loving like Jesus loved? What happens when you start to love by laying down your life? What is the fruit of it? Continue with me. In verses 19 and 20, he says, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Now, when someone's on a love tirade, it's kind of, Love is not really linear. You know, someone's like, blah. And so this is kind of one of those passages where I can't always grasp what's going on. And honestly, a lot of commentators can't 
identify it all exactly easy as well. But I'm going to take a stab, and I'm pretty much in line with Martin Luther, so I figure he's a pretty good source. So. Says, this, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. What is the fruit of us loving well? One of the best fruit is we get free from condemnation. Our hearts can be at rest in his presence. I don't know if you've noticed when people get into his presence, but the holiness of God usually shows up in such a way that we can't handle it. The very man who wrote this book is the very man who met Jesus in the book of Revelation that he would pen, and he falls like a dead man before the glorious Jesus. In other words, the presence of Jesus comes. He just can't even, he passes out. But in the presence of God, in the presence of this holy God, we're able to set our hearts at rest. How? Because of staying in the truth, by being engaged in this process of loving, and staying in that game of loving. We can set our hearts at rest in his presence. The best picture I have to describe kind of maybe this dynamic is what we see in Luke 7. I don't know if you remember this story, but Jesus shows up at a Pharisee's house. His name is Simon. And uh, then this really awkward emotional scene happens. Simon has invited Jesus to come and eat. And then a woman who, it is known, has been kind of one of the village prostitutes shows up. And she has this over-the-top display of emotion for Jesus. Starts weeping over him, washing his feet with her tears. Then she begins to dry his feet with her hair, kissing his feet over and over again, and putting perfume on them. And Simon is thinking, Jesus, do you know who this is? This is a prostitute. This is embarrassing. What's your problem? Aren't you a righteous man? And Jesus says, hold on, Simon. Let me tell you a story. As only Jesus does. Jesus is so wise. He has the best stories at the best times. Jesus says, I'm going to share a story. Instead of just rebuking you outright. Let me share a story first. Simon, I'm going to tell you about a moneylender. This guy, he gave one guy $500, another guy $50. Neither of them could pay him back, so he cancels both their debts. Guess who's more thankful? Simon, being the wise Pharisee that he is, says, well, obviously it's the guy who had $500 forgiven. He's more grateful. He says, there you go. This woman, you know, you didn't greet me when I came in. You didn't offer to wash my feet. But this woman, since the time I came in, she hasn't stopped washing my feet and kissing me. So he says this. <clears throat> he says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven because she's loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. So back to our passage here. We set our hearts at rest in his presence as we learn to love. And though I blow it and you blow it, we all blow it from time to time. But although our hearts would condemn us in his presence, if we are engaged in this process of learning to love like Jesus loved, that's what can set our hearts at rest in his presence. It's what Peter experienced when Jesus came back in John 21 and said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, oh, it's hurting me that you're asking this, but I love you. You know that I do, even though I've blown it. Can't we all say the same thing? I've blown it, but Jesus, you know that I love you. Like it says, he knows everything. God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. In other words, he knows who he's made you. He knows the, the trajectory that you're on. He sees you in your glorified, resurrected self. He knows where you're headed. He can set your heart at rest in his presence. The fruit of loving like Jesus loved is we get to be free from condemnation. And that's awesome. And lastly, the fourth question that John answers is how do I keep loving like this? 
You know, how do I love like Jesus loved? How do I lay down my life? How do I keep doing it? And we have this, again, this incredibly nonlinear, cyclical, incredible picture of what it can look like. Follow with me, verse 21 to the end. It says, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, as we just discussed, we have confidence before God, and we receive from Him anything we ask, because we obey His commands and do what pleases Him. And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. Those who obey His commands live in Him, and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. So if I was going to simplify that, I was saying, well, how do we continue in this love? I would just say we ask, we abide, and we obey. And we stay in that game. We stay in the game of asking, abiding, and obeying. As we ask Jesus, oh, Jesus, help me to love like you love. And we abide. You know, this says that we have the Spirit of God, so we remain in Him, and He remains in us. And we keep obeying. And what do we obey? If it gets too complicated, it's one of my favorite things to think of. When life gets too complicated, I just remember, what do I need to obey? This little command that Jesus gave. Believe in Him and love one another. And surely, this is John who had penned the Gospel. And in John 13, 34, and 35, he records what it was like. That last night with Jesus, and Jesus said, a new command I give you. Right? You must love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Do you think it's strange that we have so many divisions in our churches? You know, here we are in 21st century America. I think it's strange. I think that Jesus is on the move, and he's wanting us to love one another. He's wanting us to love one another. I love that ringtone. It's just so nice. <laughs> yeah, so I just said, if I was going to condense this, I'd just say, hey, love overflowing is love overcoming. Why don't you just say that with me? I think we can put it up there. Love overflowing is love overcoming. In other words, we just have this overflow. Jesus' love is overflowing in us and it's going to be love that helps us overcome. Right? We, we overcome our tendency to hate. We overcome our tendency to be hard-hearted towards those who have material need. We overcome our, our hiding and our smokes and mirrors instead of really sincerely loving each other. Love overflowing becomes love overcoming. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask Jenna and the crew to come on back. <clears throat> and um, we're going to pray a prayer together. And at the end of this prayer, I'm going to have us wait on the Lord. Okay? Remember a few, about a month back, John Prickett preached on hearing God's voice. And at the end of this simple prayer, we're just going to pray, hey Jesus, what of those three areas, in other words, back to that second question of how do we love like Jesus called us to love? And um, we know that it's, hey, we, we deal with the hate and the anger. We give material possessions where we need to. And we're sincere in our love. I think God wants to highlight one of those. You. I, think, I know that God's already speaking. I think God wants to highlight one of those and say, hey, I want to deal with you in this area. Let him, let him deal with you. Deal? Awesome. Let me stand up. <laughs> Draw your attention to the screen. We're going to pray together, and then we're just going to wait on the Lord, and then we'll just transition to our worship time. Let's pray this together. Thank you, Father, for demonstrating your love for me. 
While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess to you that I have not loved my brothers and sisters as you have loved and commanded me. As I now wait on you, Lord, please highlight an area in which you wish to presently work in me, not hating a brother or sister, taking pity on those who have material need, or having more integrity in my love. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening.